Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Security and Secure, the podcast where I set okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seifert, and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. You'll know her from last summer. She was on Love Island. She became famous for that infamous scene with PE teacher Hugo Hammond after he made his comments about fake girls. And it was that moment on Love Island that I thought, there we go. There's the one who's going to go far in her career. There's the one that's going to speak out for the young generation and make a change. And make a change that she has done. Whether it's using TikTok or Twitter or Instagram, she's using her voice for the good. She's using that platform to speak out about what's right and what's wrong. With a background in politics where she worked as the operations lead for the Department of Transport and an incredible outlook on life. I'm delighted to welcome to Security Insecure, Sharon Gafka. I want to know all about you, and we'll talk about Love Island in a bit, because obviously that's what people are interested in, but I'm more interested about where you found your voice, because you've used your voice so eloquently since Love Island, and you've stood up for things that you really believe in, and kept quiet on the things that you don't. So, can you take me back to, let's let's start in your school days. So, you went to Didcot Girls' School in Oxfordshire, 2006, 2015. What was life like for you at school? Um, oh, God. Do you know what? Um, every time I hear Didcot Girls, it really throws me back because it feels like such a long time ago that I was even in school. But, um, you know, weirdly, I, I'm the compl- I was the complete opposite to how I am now. I was very shy, very quiet. I didn't see myself as a popular person. But, I, you know, I played a lot of sport. And do you know what? In my more junior years of secondary school, I was a bit of a twat. Like, I was a very nasty child. I'd get intense detention all the time. I would try and rebel. And then it got to, what I think it got to about year nine, maybe the end, like, beginning of year 10, where, you know, I sat back and I was like, I can't behave like this because then what what is my focus after this, you know? Um, I constantly make jokes on social media about Asian parenting. And it's one of those things where it's like, what my mum has this expectation of me to do something getting into year 10 was like that pivotal moment in my life where I really focused on what I wanted to do and kind of what I wanted to get out of life um I think that's the turning point in when I started to become a woman and really put a lot more focus in on me so yeah I went from being a 
a bit of annoying pain in the bottom to you know starting to grow into who I am now. So what was it like growing up in an Asian family then? What were those little bits that you rebelled against and those that you conformed to? Um, I mean, I was always respectful to my parents. Um, they'd probably disagree. I would definitely challenge them and keep them on their toes. But um, in terms of like family attitudes, I was really respectful towards that, really respectful towards my culture. My mum was born and raised Muslim. So, um, you know, there's a lot of traditions and things that I carry from that. Um, but in terms of re- like Asian upbringing and rebellion, you know, my family have very traditional views where the man will always be the breadwinner. Like I was expected to one day get married and have children, probably have a bit of a mediocre career and just live a very normal life. I think that was what the expectation of me was. But, you know, I think slightly in my mum's mind and her subconscious, she didn't want that for me because that's what she had. And, you know, she struggled from moving halfway across the world to give her daughter something different to what she had and different opportunities. So, you know, I really get rebelled against those really stereotypical Asian traditions where women only have children. And, you know, I think I I wanted to rebel against establishment. I didn't, I remember, you know, doing my A-levels and my sociology teacher really drilling into us, like, you know, oh, you need to listen to everything I'm saying. You need to do this and you do that. And I was like, I don't need to do that. Like, I don't, you know, I'm here to learn and I get, I understand where they're coming from, but it's silly things like... I didn't like be, having to ask to go to the toilet. It's really small, really first world problems. But you know, I just rebelled against people constantly telling me what I felt like I needed to do. Why was that though? Because it sounds like you knew your identity, but there was just some misunderstanding from everyone else about how you wanted to perceive yourself. Yeah, I do think that's a common theme in my life that um, I feel like I'm misunderstood. But I think they were just taking it for being troubled, maybe not understanding me as a person. But I, I think I just I wanted to develop my own personality. I didn't want to be, you know, kind of doing that study of like sociology and psychology, maintaining that establishment standard where you conform to everything. That's very much a way to keep you down. And I kind of I think I knew that from early on that like, this is the way to stay in that kind of mediocre job where I don't get to have a say in my life or you know I I feel like I had that enough at home so why would I want to continue that school did you feel like you're almost in a bubble that you wanted to burst and you just didn't know how to get out this bubble but there was a bubble that was all around you like you said with the establishment and that you couldn't escape it yeah I think so and I think that you know I, I I was aware of um standards and what was expected of me and I, I just didn't want to do that like I knew that like my dad is very much science-based background my dad was an engineer um, and they, if I wasn't going to pursue something in that industry then he was it was kind of a bit more disconnection from my family so you know it, I feel like my rebellion was probably a bit more of a cry for help that I need I need some attention or I need a different way to channel my energies or find something that's going to benefit me and help me grow um, and I just didn't feel like maybe maybe my school wasn't helping me do that. It's interesting when you think about that now in hindsight, because that cry for attention now you can look back on it and say, you know, that was pivotal to why I acted the way I did. But you weren't eccentric. You know, you didn't live the sex, drugs and rock and roll lifestyle that one could do and have, you know, be pregnant aged to 13. You were still very instilled in society's norms and values that you that you carried on in life with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, <laughs> this whole sex, drugs, lifestyle, is, I don't think it was ever for me, but I think that was the part of my family's culture that I carried with me. 
that was that expectation like you know that I was even though I was rebelling but I was still like conforming to some sort of societal norms or like didn't want to disappoint my parents which is very important actually because if you think about it a lot of people don't want to disappoint their parents and so they won't act out so even though you've got that cry for help there's still that line of what is and what isn't acceptable and you knew where that line was but then you didn't channel it into aggression you actually channeled it into using your voice and actually speaking out and that's where your love of politics started so how did you get to that position of going right do you know what i've been quite shy all these years i want to speak out now and i want people to hear me and know that i exist um i actually think it did start in my gcses i took a gcse called citizenship and it was it became a subject where i was listened to or like having an opinion and being outspoken about your opinion wasn't seen as a negative it was encouraged and you know like being in that environment and like wanting to learn about other things like you know third world countries and where diplomacy and democracy can really help people i think that was the kind of turning point in my life where i knew i wanted to do something um and speak out and have a voice and you know that particular subject led me on i think that was the way where i was about in year 10 where i started to change a lot as a person i think that subject you know encouraged me to like pick up other things so I ended up being elected as a prefect by teachers at my school for year 11. I was sports captain. I was a member on the school council. And I think that was, it was being given an opportunity to channel my energy and my opinionated teenage self into something positive. Okay, so that's the political side of you. Then you get into the feminism side. And I think this is always interesting. When I speak to feminists who really strongly believe in the way women should be treated and they've got that passion, it always starts from somewhere. So what was that ignition for you? Um, I, <laughs> I do think it was probably maybe a little bit more of the cultural norms that I'd taken from my family. Um, you know, I think I, I was aware that maybe my... I feel like my parents were harder on me because I was a woman or they had different expectations or, you know, I remember my mum telling me that, oh, I shouldn't play football as a hobby because that's a boy's sport. And in my mind, I was thinking, it's not a boy's sport. It's literally a ball in the ground. And, you know, depending on how many people are on the pitch, that's the game. You know, I was very sporty. My brother wasn't. So it was like weird. My parents were like, well, why is she? But he isn't. So I think it was like being told that I can't do something and thinking, do you know what, I can, and I'm going to show you that I can. And I think that's the that's the feminism side of me. That's where it came from. I think it was being told from a younger age, maybe you shouldn't do certain things, or maybe you should be more girly or be something else that I didn't want to be. Supreme Me Too movement, where were you in the feminist world of what were you standing for that women's equality wasn't being achieved yet? I mean... <sighs> pre-Me Too movement, I, I was, still feel like I was pretty young, but it was, you know, I think I was trying to find my own place in the world, trying to find where I wanted to be, and I think that was kind of where I was. It wasn't, you know, I, my dream was eventually was to work for an organisation like the European Union, but I didn't know where I was going with it, and I feel like a lot of the the rise of feminism movement kind of guided me into into kind of finding where I was in the, in the feminism spectrum. It was also really weird because I think, you know, contrary to popular belief is that me doing beauty pageants, you know, that was against feminism norms. But actually I was being surrounded by strong women and feminists who knew what they wanted and had gone through all these experiences and it became a shared platform. So I think it was a weird, messy era where I was trying to find a bit more of myself in terms of my feminism aspects. Well, being a beauty pageant, 
there's always that first of all side of you know i think i'm beautiful therefore i think i should do it the other side is i'm doing this for women out there to show that we are our own people so where were you when you decided right I'm going to sign up to this beauty pageancy. What were you trying to gain from it? Was it I just want to win and know that I'm the most beautiful girl in the lineup? Um, do you know what? I knew it was never going to be about my physical appearance. And weirdly, growing up where I grew up, you know, the attractive norm was blonde girls, you know, light skin, blonde, big boobs. And that was the complete opposite of me. Like, um, you know, I'm still relatively light skin for an Asian girl, but I, I, I'm obviously not blonde. Um, so I felt like I wasn't attractive. I never considered myself beautiful when I started to enter these competitions. And I think it was it was wanting to explore something new. Um, so for me, it was, uh, you know, having done it and been through it, now getting to the adult stages of it, I was I was like, do you know what? This is me to show other women that you can you can be successful in your career, you can be well educated, and you can be pretty, or you can do hobbies that are non conventional. That's really interesting because to sign up to it, it's the same as Love One, which we'll obviously get to in a second, but you've got to have some element of beauty in there inside you to think, I can actually apply for this and actually go through the competition like this. Um, I mean, uh, do you know what? Like, I understand where people come from and I understand where that belief is, but... You know, every girl, every woman, even every man that I've met that walks through those doors in terms of pageants, they have come from a time in their life where they didn't consider themselves beautiful or pretty or anything. And they, I think they were also people that wanted to find a space to fit in or they, you know, they felt like outcasts where they were. And it was, to me, it's a room full of misfits, like being friends and finding a hobby that brings them together. So, you know, from the outside looking in, it's, everybody thinking oh well you think you're better than you are or you think you're prettier than you are but actually when you speak to these people it's, you can very much tell very quickly that it's very different well as well at those beauty pageants that you met molly may who's obviously on the love island before you what was your experience of her like um i yeah very young molly may um i think she must have been about 14 do you know what i think i think with young molly it's pretty much like what a in my mind, a stereotypical pageant girl is like she, you know, somebody who basically probably didn't feel like they fitted in where they were growing up originally and they wanted to find a new hobby. They wanted new opportunities. And, you know, I remember her like hearing about her interview from people that were on the judging panel and her saying that she had these really big dreams. So, you know, it's really nice to see her actually like living that dream that she wanted to have when she was younger. So, you know, for me, like, my opinion of her hasn't changed since I knew her when she was 14. Well, she's an incredible businesswoman. And obviously, when she got her Pretty Little Thing deal, there was a very big split of how can she be a creative director at her age. But equally, she'd been working at it for so long and knows the industry inside out. It's exactly what you need from someone with a brand like that. Uh, Yeah, I agree, definitely. I'm really... So, I mean, I listen to her... Um, interview with Stephen Bartlett and I, it really irritated me when I saw the comment on Twitter about oh she's young like she's this she's that and it's like but that doesn't mean anything because somebody's made that comment to me like I've been sat at meeting rooms and meeting tables and someone's completely disregarding me because of my age and it's like well actually I have a very different opinion very different outlook and a very different experience to you that's why I'm at this table and that's exactly the same as her she's at that table because she has experience you know she started doing social media from a far younger age than 
I did. So she, like, even though I'm four years older than her, she knows things that I, I will never know. Um, and also, I think with industry now, it's not about age. Like, age to me doesn't mean anything. When I've hired people before in the past, I've never looked at how old they are. I've looked at your willingness to work and your willingness to learn. And I think that's one of the most incredible things about her as a businesswoman. I think the only thing is about age is maturity. And I started my proper professional working life aged 22, 23. And I always say I don't think it was until 25 that I really matured and started seeing myself as a professional. And we know boys mature a lot later than girls. So age doesn't really matter, but it's the maturity side. And if you are a girl and you're young, you can mature a lot quicker than the guys do. And therefore, you might get a bigger job, even though your age doesn't depend on it, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I started my professional working career at 18 and I'd be damned if anyone told me that at 18, I, I'm not mature enough or, you know, like it, everybody's rate is different and there is no right or wrong way. And I just happen to be mature enough to be in a central government department age 18. And how did you find life in government? Uh, very big jump, you know, coming from a relatively small town to all of a sudden being in the heart of where everything is. Like, you know, Westminster is the heart of life and in Great Britain and the UK. And it's it's crazy. And, you know, it was a nice change for me because I got to see so many different types of people. I got to meet so many people have different experiences. But, I, you know, I, I will openly admit that at times I felt like I also felt like an outcast in government because because of my age, because of certain demographics about me. And I did feel like, you know, maybe because of the route that I took into government, maybe some people resented me, people that are a little bit older, that are maybe a little bit more junior. And it wasn't just me that felt like that. I think it was apprentices in general that had that, had that feeling. But yeah, it's a very mixed bag, I think, depending on who I was interacting with at the time. Do you have any regrets about your time in Westminster? Anything you'd have done differently? Anything you'd have changed? Because obviously we're going to come to that big jump that you did when you went on to Love Island in a second. And so looking at those experiences specifically in Westminster, is there anything you'd have done differently? Thinking back to it, anything I would have done differently. I think definitely during my apprentice years, I would have stuck up for myself more. I felt like that maybe some of the people I worked with judged a book by its cover. Because I wore makeup to work, because I dressed a certain way, they maybe, maybe thought like less of me. So I think I would have stuck up for myself a bit more then. But also, as I, as I finished my apprenticeship and got further in my career, I just wish I, I... I mean, I took risks, but I think I wish I took them earlier. What risks would you have taken earlier? I think in the beginning of my career, I was very much a yes man. I took a lot of work on... I, You know, I think at one point in my career, when I was working in one particular office, I was doing two people's jobs, and I pretended like that was OK. And, uh, you know, one of the jobs was three grades higher than I was, and I was struggling... But I didn't want people to know I was struggling because I didn't want that misconception that, oh, well, she's not good enough. So, you know, I wish that I'd stuck up for myself more and I wish I just just spoke out more and just said no instead of just being everyone's yes man and just taking on far more than I needed to. But how did you get to that position? Because it's very easy now in hindsight to say that. But in the moment, would that have really been realistic for you to be able to speak out? I think, yeah, I think it was in my, I think I, there were people around that I could have spoken to, but I think it was in my own head where, you know, that whole British stiff upper lip where you, you don't show your emotion at work, you don't show when you're struggling, or maybe like the cultural norms where, you know, you work yourself. Like I've seen my, my dad work himself to the bone and like, I thought that was completely normal. So I just took that as, 
as gospel when actually in reality it's not. Yeah, it's very true. It's very true indeed. So then you get to Love Island. Talk to me about your application. What made you want to go on the show? And don't say just because <laughs> you were single. Oh, no. I mean, obviously that was a part to play in it, but it's really weird because I used to joke about it to my friends all the time. And I think I actually used to joke about it to my ex. I'd be like, well, if you ever broke up with me, I'm just going to go on Love Island. Because he was massive, like, he hated the show. So knowing, like, I used to say that to him if he was annoying to me. It got to that point, I'd been single for half a year, maybe a little bit longer. I was bored. Lockdown had been awful for everyone. I, And I think, you know, lockdown for me was kind of that realisation that I spent all my life working. Like, if I, like, when I had COVID, if I unfortunately died, what experiences would I have lived that are unique? I would have just spent all my life working. So, you know, as much as I made a joke to my friends about it and we thought it'd be funny for me to send an application in, I think that was a massive part of it, just to experience something new and fun because I didn't go travelling. I didn't do girls' holidays when I was younger. So I feel like I missed out a massive gateway or massive, like, part of life. Why didn't you do the girls' holidays when you were younger? Because I was working. Because I put my career first. Um, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing if that's what you want at the time. And actually, in hindsight, I'm glad I did what I did. But it's, you know, I felt like I isolated myself a lot and I just didn't, I want, it was that cultural norm again and pressure of being so successful in my career that nothing else mattered when actually that's not true. It's it's such an interesting thing to think about because I always think about this. Of, if I didn't go to university, would I be further in my career? And what's more important, the life skills or the career and then I think well I've put my career first so much that like you I've missed out on so many experiences you know I've not seen the world and I've always been single and I've not therefore had any of these big experiences that people having couples and the heartbreak and all that jazz I haven't got those life skills but then it's it's weird to think about where you are in the world and what is more important to you career life where you are you know how much money you're on etc isn't it yeah it's, it's I think it's about finding a balance I think you know, actually, one of the do- one of the reasons why I do find social media a little bit toxic is because this weird toxic grind culture. Um, especially living in London, like I lived in central London pretty much all my adult life until recently. So it was that toxic grind culture that you have to be up, you have to be doing something all the time, and you can't just have a bit of fun. Like if I mean, if I turn around to my parents and said something, they're like, "Why are you doing that? Or you don't need to do that. Well, that's a bit silly. Like that's not very responsible of you." And like my parents, like my dad had his first house when he was 18. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think about now. Like, what would I buy at 18? Probably a Freddo. But like, um, it's, yeah, it's weird. Like, they had very different life. And I was trying to take that their life was normal. But actually, it's not because society has changed. So, yeah, I felt like, you know, everything happened to me for a reason. I did everything that was right for me at the time. But, you know... I just wanted something different. Like lockdown made me want something a little bit different. Not in just in terms of experiences. I didn't necessarily go. I didn't go in thinking about career opportunities. That was the last thing on my mind. I actually thought more about what me being on the show would be like in terms of representation for younger women like me that don't necessarily see themselves on reality TV. So this is a new topic that has opened up over the past couple of years. I think obviously since George Floyd with Black Lives Matter. There's been a big push in conversation about representation of black people on TV, but it hasn't happened yet for Asian people. So Love Island hasn't normally had that many Asian contestants on the show. Obviously, their representation of black people has been there, but obviously they're nowhere near equality yet. 
where did you, how where and how did you fit in being the only Asian girl on this series? But in particular as well that you're representing that whole community. So you are a rep, yeah, you're a representation for the community. So the way you act reflects on the whole community, not just yourself on the show. Yeah, I think um, obviously I do feel like maybe cultural again cultural norms comes into the lack of maybe Asian representation on Love Island in particular. I think if I'm correct, there were three Asian people in general on this series. All of them were women, so we've not yet had any, like, in my mind, enough representation from Asian men at all. I think it was, you know, I feel like one of my go-tos and drives in life is that, you know, I didn't have someone like me to look up to growing up. So I want to be that person for other people. And I've done that with everything that I do, whether it's, you know, really something really small, like winning an award at whatever sport I'm playing to my career to now being on reality TV. So, you know, when I saw, obviously I walked into the villa first, when Shannon had walked into the villa, I was like, yeah, like this year's going to be so different because in the lineup there was, you know, like Shannon, Faye, Taz, me and Lib, and like we were all so different and it felt like, yeah, maybe this year's going to be a little bit different. So how do you look back at that experience now? So six months has passed. You can now look back again in hindsight. From that moment you went into the villa and your experience, how do you look back at that time of what, first of all, you wanted to get out of it, how you found the experience, and then how you found coming out of that experience? I mean, what I want, I went in with pretty much open mind. I wanted to meet. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. People, new people, 
Um, I felt like maybe I was in a time in my life where meeting somebody and settling down and being in a relationship was probably right for me. Obviously, it's never guaranteed when you go into a show like Love Island, so I didn't like, I didn't expect it, but like it would, it would have been nice. In terms of my experience on it, I mean, in terms of race and stuff, I feel like Asian women were taken as a token or a tick box in this series. Like you know, when you look back at the four Asian women that walked through those doors barely got a look in and for those that are listening that have kind of forgotten it will you just remind everyone who the four people were so yourself and then who else uh, so it'd be myself shannon um priya and aj that were the four asian well the four asian contestants from this year's from series seven of love island i just felt like you know like none of i don't feel like any of us were given an equal chance at anything it's all well and good having a diverse lineup but if there isn't diversity in what people find attractive then you've completely missed the mark and kind of wasted everyone's time like you know i felt like i was scapegoated for a tick box 95 percent of the time i was in the villa and you know like when you i was like so it was so nice to have me and another asian contestant shannon in like the first couple of days but she was booted off within 24 hours and then like aj i don't know how long aj was in there for but priya wasn't in there for very long either that's what i mean like it was it's all well and good putting us in there but what's the point if we're not going to have a chance at anything well it's interesting because you were all divisives for the winners and for the that group you know you're all like bombshells (laughs) for the group because we knew that lucinda would do the best out of everyone we knew that and we knew she wouldn't stay on the show but we knew and I'm going to be very stereotypical here, and this is my personal opinion. Most beautiful girl, she's my ideal girl. I will do anything for Lucinda. And uh, she, to me, was the true winner. She was the Molly Mayor of this year. She was going in there for a reason. She came out, she got all these business deals. Then you got people like Millie. And we know Millie, nice girl, could go far, maybe not in the industry, but in the fashion world, not in the media world. And so people like Shannon come in, and Shannon's this Asian woman, and she's done OnlyFans, and oh my God, how can she do that against her culture? Boom, she's out the show. AJ comes in, and I love AJ, and I know AJ away from the media, and we, you know, amazing girl. And the conversations that we have, she never had on the show. She then goes. Then Priya comes in, and Priya comes in at the end of the series, and she comes in, and it's Dr. Priya, and she does those little devices of, um, you know, like medical degrees. Yes, I've got a degree in X, Y, Z, and it was like sex, or I've done this and this space and this space with that person. And that's like a device for people like Faye and Millie to showcase their relationships because those are the ones that are going to go far. Then there's yourself, Sharon, and your big thing, as I said at the top, was with Hugo when it came about him talking about fake girls and that was your moment to kind of go, right, this is where I as a feminist and this is where I as someone who's a bit outspoken will speak about Hugo, that isn't how you treat girls. And that was really the only plot you had. So you were all little bombshells around these people that the producers had seen are kind of their ideal six contestants that define this year's Love Island. Is that fair to say? I mean, uh, I I kind of felt like we were... I, I don't even know how to explain it, you know? I mean, that it's weird that my conversation with Hugo is kind of like my biggest plot twist because there were so many things to me that happened but that's what they chose to show but they didn't choose to show all of it so you know in my head they've picked us all as characters they've given us all roles to play and if we spoke outside of those roles it wasn't shown and that's the way it is and that's why every time that someone out of Love Island comes out they say well look you only see 45 minutes you only see the edited version yes I was myself but 
the producers know what they're doing when they're creating these characters. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like it's it's um like when people ask me, is it scripted? I said, well, it's not scripted; it's guided. And that's guided with, can you have a conversation with that person, knowing it might be, become a bit confrontational, and that's the scene they will use because they know you two might not get on, or we know that you two are good looking, you're probably going to end up falling in love, so we'll create a date space for you, and that will be our scene. That's how they're guiding you, rather than feeding you lines and telling you what to say. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And, um, you know, I think with that whole situation between Hugo and I, it's where... I mean, I watched it back because I wanted, like, I'd obviously come out. When you come out, you have a conversation with the press team. Um, and, you know, they'd obviously said that, there, you know, there were loads of articles, conversations on TV. I think Loose Women had a conversation about my argument with Hugo. And, like, that, he was telling me the headlines. And I was like, but that doesn't make sense because that's not what happened. So I don't understand where these headlines are coming from because that's not everything I said or what I said was taken out of context. And I, I think that really angered me. And I feel like, you know, actually since leaving the show, a lot of people have messaged me and reached out to me on social media to apologise for an opinion they had of me pre, like, during the show because we're not the same people. My friends and family were in horror of what they saw on TV because that is not full representation of the person I am. So now in hindsight, looking back at that six months, I'm thinking, well, I was scapegoated. I was used as an ethical tick box for whatever you wanted to portray um, in in that episode, in that series. And it's it's hard because you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. Like I'm grateful to ITV and to Love Island for, you know, giving me that opportunity and the opportunities that followed after it. But at the same time, I'm like, at what expense? At what expense to my race, to my culture, and to my personality and my my character? I was a positive contribution to the show in the fact that a lot of Asian women have reached out to me and said thank you for being representation on the show, or you know a lot of a lot of people from the queer community, for example, because I had conversations about coming out as bisexual on the show. So you know a lot of people from a lot of different groups were like grateful to me to be on there. I had somebody at an event come up to me who was on Made in Chelsea and was like, I want to say thank you because you showed everyone that trainee lawyers or law students or law graduates can do reality tv and that's okay so you know like i i was positive in a sense that i gave a lot of people something to look at that felt like them on tv on the flip side it's where i've left the show nobody's type is asian let's be honest like i'm gonna be quite frank no boy that went through that villa liked asian girls so what on earth was the point of putting four asian women in there when you know damn well that no one will like them no one will fancy them and then knowing what kind of comes with love island in terms of trolling i've been trolled multiple times because in quotation marks people didn't find me attractive or people don't find me attractive but realistically it's six men out of however many people on this whole planet and obviously being bisexual it opens me to a lot more options but there was out of six people they didn't like me and like that's my that's my whole character defamation is that apparently my entire self-worth on that show is the fact nobody fancies me. So that's why I feel like I was scapegoated. And because I was, because I am well-educated, I sound, my accent comes from Oxford. So naturally, people took to me as I'm posh, I'm stuck up, and I think I'm better than everyone else. And that's what I mean by being scapegoated, when actually none of those things are true at all. I want to pick up on something you said, and I'm going to ask a question. And... It's a question that's just come to my mind and therefore it might not come out the right way. It might be the complete wrong thing to say, but I'm just quite interested in what you think of it. If the lineup had eight black 
uh, Asian girls and one blonde, blue-eyed, big bust girl, as we said earlier on. And that was a guy, and he chose that blonde girl. Would that be okay? And second of all, what happens if it was an all blonde, blue eyed, big busted uh, lineup plus one black girl? Would that be okay? Because do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm getting at? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, personally, I the lineup I think this year was diverse, so that's okay. And you know, if your type is blonde, chesty, blue eyes, whatever. That is your type. Like, I'm not against anyone's preference, but my what I struggle to deal with being in the villa and since leaving the villa is that what is the point of making the cast diverse if the if your type isn't diverse? So you could have, like, the most ethnically diverse body diversity cast ever, but if neither, like, if they all fancy the slim girl with big boobs as blonde, then what's the point? Like you're you're completely missing. You're complete. You're defeating the point, um, and you're defeating the debate that everybody's having about diversity on shows like Love Island. So you know, I had um I had a journalist come up to me and she said that because my name was the first one that was leaked and announced, she had high hopes for this series in terms of diversity, but she felt let down the more she was watching it. Um, and that's heartbreaking to hear. Like I don't want people to feel like that, and I don't want people to think that I'm picking on certain people with certain characteristics that's not what i mean at all um and i'm not bitter or twisted about people having that as their type i think it's literally that if you want to make reality tv like love island diverse you really need to think about the entirety of the cast and their personal attributes as well well talking of attributes there's also that thing that and we're going to come to love island as a business commodity in a second but if i google you sharon what comes up i've googled sharon gaffgar we've got love island sharon gaffgar flashes her ample assets in a plunging satin romper sharon gaffgar showcases her toned midriff in black crop top during birthday night out love island sharon gaffgar puts on a busty display in a semi-sheer bra love island's sharon gaffgar dressed like this dressed like that it's all about your image where do you sit on the fence on that? Because that's also a thing of, well, hold on a minute, why am I being defined by the way I look? So what if I'm wearing a bra? So what if I'm wearing a satin romper, or whatever that is? You know, what? how does that define me as a person? I think that's where, you know, I, I will openly admit that I've had mental struggles leaving the show because of something like that. Not in a sense where, you know, obviously some, some contestants went on for business. Um, and, you know, that's, like, because the main focus on a lot of media is your appearance, that's why they do so well. But my main focus isn't. Like, you know, okay, I post pretty pictures on Instagram, but I sat there and I talked about mental health, spiking, trolling, um, all of these amazing things, but they just don't get picked up. They, they're not interested. Like, my article with you know, about spiking, that went global. I had friends that lived in South Africa messaging me to say that they've seen it printed in their tabloids but nobody cares about that they don't even care about what i'm wearing whether i've gained weight what haircut i've had what moisturizer i'm wearing like it's very confusing and i mean i, I you know people will sit there and say you knew what you're getting yourself into or did but it's 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 weird for me to only just be defined about my appearance and then that again that's what contributes to your social media presence and platform isn't it really but Love Island is a commodity. It's not there to just be, here's the place to find love. Obviously, that's an element of it. But the element of, first of all, is who do we have as the future of ITV Young Stars? You know, can we get a star 
that's going to go on Love Island and mould them into having their own reality shows that we've seen with people like Amber and Olivia and Chris and Kem. There's the commodity of fashion brands that love you, that want to work with you. There's the commodity of your social media following. Love Island isn't just a TV show. But what you've done, as you've said, is you've spoken out about these important issues away from the show. So you've not been defined by Love Island and you're now being defined by this... I suppose this this thing that happened to you with the spiking, that you're trying to change what the conversation is and you're using your platform that you've got to the better. So let's talk about the spiking and go back to July 2020 when it first happened to you and work our way forward. So what was that initial night like for you? I mean, to me, obviously, apart from the fact that it was the first day of reopening from the first lockdown, um, it felt like normal. Like, it just felt like, you know... Five girls hadn't seen each other in a really long time, just going out for lunch to celebrate my best, like my closest friend's birthday. Um, the whole day was completely normal. Like, you know, we were all there having lunch. We had, you know, a couple of bottles, bottles of Prosecco. You know, my friend's dog was there. It was lovely. And then all of a sudden, it took this weird downhill turn where, you know, I know a lot of venues and establishments were stopping people mixing between tables but somehow um you know i think someone had made their way to our table where maybe people would start to get a bit more drunk maybe the staff were just a bit more relaxed or just couldn't be bothered to tell people anymore um so a drink of mine that was on the table somehow got something put in it um and i remember like well i don't remember my friend mentioned to me that i turned around to her and i said something doesn't feel right something doesn't taste right but, you know, because I was, like, I was just so giddy and excited to finally see my friends again, that I, maybe, like, my my sense of self-security lapsed. I was, I think, you know, it's, it's weird to say that I felt like I, my outcome was fortunate that night because I don't know what their intentions were. I don't know what could have happened if I'd gone to a different place. I do consider myself to be really responsible in terms of, you know, when I do go out, when I do drink alcohol i very rarely get into well you know i haven't got into a state where i can barely manage my own bodily functions since i was 18 so i do consider myself really really responsible and i i've managed to make my way to the bathroom and i've locked myself in and, and then i passed out uh, i you know banged my head on the toilet as i'd fainted and it took my friends to realize that i hadn't come back for 10 minutes for them to find it weird because i'm not the type of person that disappears on a night out and openly if i said i've had enough i'm going home i would openly say that again so you know they'd gone looking for me and there was one cubicle that just never opened so they i mean you know girls make friends in weird places and girls toilets are one of those places they were just like you know what we're just going to open it because if we find something at least we've helped another girl out and it was me you know a lot of my i don't remember any of that i've only ever seen a selfie that my friend took of myself and her together where my eyes can't even look in the same direction as the camera like both my eyes are looking in complete opposite directions and that's that's the only memory i have of anything that's happened apart from what my friends have told me and then me coming around in hospital God. so when was that moment that you realized you had been spiked that you hadn't just the doctor thinking well she's star, she's obviously taken a substance um, I mean, it was before I did reality TV, actually. But I think, you know, they thought that I was just, I was a naive girl, that I was young and I was stupid and I just i just had too much to drink. That's what the paramedics told my friend. My best friend is a doctor. She, well, she's a dentist, but she's medically qualified. She went to medical school for five years. She 
is my dentist. She knows the med- my medical history off the back of my off the back of her hand. She knows me. She's known me for eight years. So she knows me better than anyone, I think. And then in a weird sense, she was like, I know this girl. She's not just drunk. Like, she's not being irresponsible. And, like, she might, she had to beg a paramedic to take me to hospital. I think the realisation where I'd been spiked is that I was delirious. I didn't know where I was, despite being told multiple occasions which hospital I was in. I barely could tell you what my name was. And I remember hearing... Or, like, just when I was coming around, that before they discharged me, they wanted to check something in my blood again. And I remember being, like, my best... One of my other friends was allowed... Was, well, was barely allowed in the hospital because of COVID precautions, which obviously we both understand. But she was like, I want to know what you're doing to her. Because if nobody's there and she's unconscious, like, what are you giving her? What are you doing to her? What's happening? What's happened? And I remember seeing my friend really distraught having an argument with a receptionist because she's like, I need to know what's happening to her. And I remember turning around to her and saying, oh, I don't know what's happened to me. I don't know what they've given to me. I was discharged with zero papers or even a nurse or doctor telling my friend what happened. They kind of just handed me off and was like, here you go. Um, And I remember saying to her, I can't remember exactly what the substances they found in my body or in my bloodstream, but I remember saying it to her and she looked at me like mortified and she stayed at my flat that night because I was too scared to be on my own, rightfully so. But she'd obviously done a bit of Googling. She turned around to me the next morning. She was like, well, you were spiked. She was like, this is the drug they put in your drink. And that's what it comes from. But I remember being severely anxious. I didn't want to leave my flat at all. I didn't leave for maybe a week. I, work, I mean, I was working in the office because I was working in the civil service during the entirety of lockdown. I just was too scared to go, too scared to go to work. So I worked from home. Um, a little bit but I actually I had to go to work that day like the day after I'd been spiked and it was awful I phoned the hospital once I'd kind of got my head around it and said like why like this happened to me why wasn't my friend told why didn't you try and tell me or tell somebody or like tell me what I could do or tell my friend what she could do with me and they were like oh yeah well we they she basically brushed me off you know a senior nurse sent around to me and said we don't do drug testing if that's what happened to you, we wouldn't know, so we don't test for it. Um, you should have gone to the police. And I was like, well, if I couldn't tell you my name or where I was, how am I supposed to know that I'm going to the police? And I just feel like, you know, it wasn't taken seriously. I understand the NHS is overwhelmed and, and all these things, and you can't treat everyone for everything. But, you know, why is there no standard procedure or, like, any kind of guidance? Like, even if she just gave my friend a leaflet saying, like, we think this is what happened, we don't know what to do, but, like, this is a bit of advice. Like, there was nothing. It was just... Oh, she's an idiot. Here you go. So what needs to change? What conversations need to start? What are you campaigning for now, Sharon? So for me, I'm campaigning now. First of all, I want it to be taken seriously. You know, having conversations with other victims of spiking, it's not just women, it's men as well, that they're not taken seriously. They're just passed off as if they're drunk and they're irresponsible or um, it's their fault. Or, um, you know... I want it to be taken seriously. I want it to be taken into consideration when you look at things. Because when you, let's be honest, when you put a drug in someone's body, there's so many side effects that come with it. You don't know if you're going to put that person into cardiac arrest and what other health conditions they've got. Um, for me, like I think it's it's not until the injections became a thing that people were starting to take it seriously. And I want I want standardised advice within the NHS and government. I think that you know I know the NHS is run by a variety of different healthcare services and they all have their own policy and their own funding and things like that but 
for me, it should be standardized, generalized advice or even somewhere online where I can find out where I want to go to or who I can speak to for me to be taken seriously. Because, you know, I I mean, I'm writing at the moment, the government have released a call for evidence Home Affairs Committee, and they've asked people to submit evidence when it comes to spiking. They've not advertised that. I found out by another woman who had just messaged me on Instagram. So why, why is it not known? You know, I work for loads of female organisations. They didn't know. Why are we not being told that, you know... Spiking, like there's call for evidence has been announced or released. Googling it when I'm writing my submission or when I was writing my Grazia article, it's all victim blaming and victim shaming. You know, when you go on places like Talk to Frank for drug advice, they can give you every piece of evidence or advice when it comes to class A drugs. But when it comes to spiking, they're like, oh, to stop yourself being spiked, you should do this or you should do that, not what to do when you have been spiked. It's not anyone's fault that you've been spiked apart from the person that's done that to you. So why is the narrative so different when it comes to something else? So where can someone go to if they've been affected by what they've heard and they have been spiked and they want more information or they just want to know what those signs to look for are, where should people be going online? You, you can't. Like for me, like when I was looking... There wasn't anywhere. I couldn't find anything. And that's why I think that's why I find it so frightening. Because it's it's predominantly a female crime, like it's a crime against women. Um, so that's why I just don't think it's take, being taken as seriously. And it's not until like I mean, now with the girls night in boycott, um, like now being part of the campaign as well, they've started to come up with their own advice. But there's no for me, like when you specifically Google it, there's not a direct place that tells you helpful advice Sharon Gafka one final thing from you today on the podcast a couple of your fans have come in with a couple of questions is it alright to quickly go through some uh, yeah it's very scary when you say stuff like that but of course you can right quick fire M788994 says why did Toby unfollow you Aaron and Hugo um, I wasn't aware that he did but if he did that's really awkward <laughs> <laughs> Have you? do you still follow him why do you think he has then? <laughs> if if he has done, that's all good. Um, uh, personally, I don't know. Uh, George, we'll move swiftly on. George Ventura says, "Do you still see anyone from Love Island? And what was your favourite moment?" Uh, yeah, I do still people see people from Love Island. Um, you know, I see Kaz, Faye, Abby, um, Aaron, and Hugo quite a fair bit. Um, I think my favourite moment is probably something that didn't get shown, which is all of us goofing around in the pool. Mar Fran Ente says, "Post Sharon leaving the villa." Of new guys, who would she have chosen to couple up with? Um, oh, what, while they were in the villa? Yeah, so after you left, who would you have coupled up with if you were still in? Um, Matthew, probably. And Lulu89 says, do you think there's a divide between this year's Islanders? Which is quite interesting because I think there is, from what I've seen online, a big divide between kind of the early people and then the late people who stayed on the show. Um, I don't know if there, I don't know if there is a divide. I think people that had uh, maybe beef in the show that wasn't resolved or wasn't shown. Uh, I don't I don't see a divide personally. I try to stay out of drama in the real world. Sharon Gafka there. Oh, what an amazing person. And just so open and honest. And this is why I loved her in the villa. 
because she stood up for what she believed in wasn't in there for the fame wasn't in there to just get in a relationship but to actually stand her ground and that's what i love about people who come onto love island who come onto my podcast security insecure You've been listening to Security Insecure with me, Johnny C. If you like what you heard, please do go down onto Apple iTunes, give it a five-star rating and leave a review. I can't make this podcast successful without your help. I've been Johnny Seifert. Looking forward to speaking to you for the rest of 2022. Same time next time. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you and goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.